All right, Mrs. Clinton, let's do a lightning round. We all know Croatia got screwed yesterday on that call in the penalty box. Brazil is starting the World Cup with a tainted victory. But as a politician, you probably don't feel comfortable saying that. Well, I think you're reading it very wrong. I think that, uh, as I said, um, just as the president has said, you know, just because you're a politician doesn't mean you're not a thinking human being. And you gather information, you think through positions, you're not uh, 100% uh, set, thank goodness. You're constantly reevaluating where you stand. All right, you've got to be watching Orange is the New Black. Right. I mean, these women are funny, sexy, complicated. We've come a long way since 1993 when George and Jerry were terrified that people would think they were gay. And they kept saying, not that there's anything wrong with that. Of course. And, and you know, again, let's we are living at a time when this extraordinary change is occurring. And I'm proud of um, our country. I'm proud of the people who have been on the front lines of advocacy. But in 1993, that was not the case. So I'm I'm not clear. Do you watch Orange is the New Black? I think I'm an American. <laughs> I think that I think we have all evolved. Did you start watching it right when it first came out on Netflix? Somebody's always out front, and <laughs> thank goodness they are. Um, but that doesn't mean that those who join later uh, in being publicly supportive or even privately accepting are any less committed. So you do watch the show, but it took you a while to catch up to it. Maybe you binge-watched it one weekend? I have to say, I think you are persistent, but you are playing with my words. I'm just trying to clarify. No, I don't think you are trying to clarify. (laughs) I think you're trying to say that, you know, I used to be uh, opposed, and now I'm in favor, and I did it for political reasons, and that's just flat wrong. Jeez, I was going to ask you about Game of Thrones, but you know what? Forget it. Today on the show, gay issues are still stirring the political pot, the outcry over Wagner with a digital orchestra, and a fight about drones on the beach. And now he's really upset that he can't play his Vuvuzela this year, Colin McEnroe. Yeah, well, what is up with that? I saved that for four years, my Vuvuzela, and apparently they're completely out of fashion. Uh, they're just not, uh, not a Brazil thing. All right, yes, I-, I hope we have time for drones on the beach because as one of our guests, uh, James Hanley, says uh, it really does contain the future, this particular moment. Everything, every appalling aspect of our immediate future is contained in that story. But we may not have time to get to it. We've got some big topics to get to. Uh, let me introduce the nose to you. I just mentioned James Hanley, so I'll say again. James Hanley, he is uh, the, the founder, curator, creator, president, and CEO of Trinity Cine Studio. Um, you're at least, you're all of those things, I think, right? I mean, that's I guess so. Yes, I think so. Reasonably, <laughs> reasonably fair. Uh, the founder and uh, creator and curator of her communications <laughs> agency, whose name I have a mental block about, Patty McQueen. What is it called? <laughs> Strategic <laughs> Visions. <laughs> Strategic Visions. Communication strategies. That was I was very you, close. You were very close. Yeah. Very close. And a very special uh, hello to uh, Jim Chapdelaine, uh, musician, uh, producer, and everything else extraordinaire, who I believe maybe tomorrow has a birthday that was worth taking some no- um, tomorrow. We won't say. I won't say the number. Is it tomorrow? Last week. It was last week? <laughs> yeah, that's why. That's why I put this. Oh, off. I didn't want to make oh, it all about me. I got you. Man. That's right. It was last week. Okay. Yeah, I've yeah. Totally lost track. Does, of time. does that Do make I... you a bon vivant? Uh, yeah. anyway. Hey, watch what you're throwing <laughs> around there. Not this that there's a... anything wrong with that. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> all right. So we, we should talk a little bit about this. It, you know, this is one of those weeks. And so we had uh, in San Francisco, he doesn't even know any better not to say this in San Francisco, uh, Texas Governor Rick Perry uh, told an audience, I may have the genetic coding that I'm inclined to be an alcoholic. 
Uh, actually, we should just stop there. That, that, that's a good enough question. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's over. You no, know, he said, I may have the genetic coding that I'm inclined to be an alcoholic, but I have the desire not to do that. And I look at hom- the homosexual issue the same way. Anderson Cooper, um, meanwhile, I don't know what it is about Texas, but he's uh, talking to a state rep from Texas about conversion therapy, a very edgy conversation in which uh, Anderson Cooper seemed to have a better command of what was being said and what, what was being put on the record than said state rep did. Um, and, and you know, we may, as we talk about this, circle back to both of those. Uh, they are also part of a constellation uh, of polarized political talk over the course of the week because of, obviously, the, the Arcantor loss in Virginia. But, you know, I just – one of those little sort of curiosities, one of those little rarities that you don't hear that often was this exchange. It's a seven-minute and 20-second exchange between Terry Gross and Hillary Clinton. We're not going to play the whole thing for you right now. We might play a little bit of, of it later, although you heard some of the Hillary Clinton end of this. This is a, an exchange in which Terry Gross really tried to pin Hillary Clinton down uh, on – on, on her over, overall slowly evolving position on on gay marriage, on the right to gay marriage, and and, uh, and, and asked her uh, about that, and basically was asking the question: Was it the case that you always got it, but there just wasn't the right political moment um, to say that you got it and 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 embrace the fact that you got it? Or was it the case that you changed your mind, that, that over time that you didn't in fact support gay marriage um, a, a, you know, at the outset and over time you came to see that that had been wrong and, and you changed on it? First of all, I don't know. Not an unreasonable question or is that an unreasonable question? Not, not unreasonable. But her answers, I, I would say – I would say two things. That, uh, one, one thing about Rick Perry and his – Choice to pursue alcoholism or not yeah. <laughs> might be questioned in his performance in the debates in the right. primary. So, so you could question from that moment on. I think everything you said is is a big but. Um, but regarding Hillary, I think we're li- still living in the shadow of the forty-seven percent remark and clinging to your guns and Bibles remark. And so, I would think her handlers have her so battened down and. Um, uh, reserved and vanillified that she's afraid to say anything of substance except talking points. And the minute she gets off her talking points, I think there's prescription bottles being shaken. We, we, but, uh, yeah, well, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I also think, you know, I, in, in all the talking we've done about it, I actually talked to somebody this morning who I thought would have been more upset about that, and, and, and he wasn't. Um, you know, I think that... Um, I think that there is a perception that that Terry Gross pushed it too far. You know, she got her answer. She should have just taken her answer. Um, and I think there's a certain, you know, if, if you if you sort of respect journalism and you want to have real answers, then you say, Terry, she did a pretty good job. I mean, she just didn't let it go. Somebody counted ten times that she yeah, went back right. at the at the same question. And, you know, it's a little like, like uh, you know, talking with Lowell Weicker used to be when you had a question that he didn't like. There was this blowback that you'd get. And as a, if you're the one asking the questions, that's pretty intimidating. So I give her a lot of credit for sticking with it. But, but I actually think we heard it differently. Yeah. Well, I don't know, James. How did you hear it? I'm not sure, so sure of that. I mean, I, I certainly – my first thought was 
that, wow, it is so great to hear a journalist who won't back down, who actually pursues and will not let that issue go. And you could say to a certain extent, you could say, well, okay, has she actually said something here? But it actually goes to the heart of the way a politician responds to issues. And I think it's, this happened to be over the same-sex marriage issue. But I think that too often you have a candidate who's prepared over and over again by handlers who has the answers ready and delivers those answers and the journalist goes on to something else. And mm -hmm. so it succeeded. In this particular case, I think that she, by appearing on Terry Gross's show at all, was a statement. It, you know, it's sort of like, you know, this is sort of like... Uh, appearing with beloved journalists to appear more human kind of approach. And I think that she came on there, though, misunderstanding the type of person that Terry Gross is, the very reason, her very integrity is what makes her popular. And I think the fact that she actually, that, that Hillary Clinton actually sort of faced that down and wouldn't answer the question and was really... It, if I think it focused a lot of people on the whole nature of the fact that for whatever reason, the Clintons, both Clintons, really had developed such an extraordinary political calculation to everything they did based on the fact that they were being pursued all the time. Just that alone would make them like that. And now uh, with this prospect of a presidential campaign, all of these high-priced uh, advisors are amplifying that. And so that's why she ended up where she did. But, uh, you know, you could say probably for progressives or gay people or people who are, who are aware of, of all of this, maybe it was Terry Gross who was the hero of this. But um, some people, I think, might think it was unfair. But I, I, I don't know. I, an intelligent reading of that says no to I, me. I thought it was totally fair. And I think Patty pointed this out in, in the emails. Um, th there are moments in this exchange where Terry Gross seems to be trying to give Hillary, Rodham, Hillary Clinton a, a hand up out of the ditch. Yeah, um, and right. I, I watched the same thing happen with, earlier this week when Diane Sawyer interviewed Hillary Clinton. Uh, and, and there was a similar kind of defensiveness and uh, evasiveness. And at one point, Diane Sawyer said, I think it was about Benghazi. And, and she said, I think maybe the American people need to hear you say a sentence that begins with, um, I should have. Or, you know, I really wish that I had or, or something like that. They, you know, they, they, they just need to hear something that follows that. And she couldn't do it. I don't know if I agree with that, but, yeah. but I, I, uh, I've lost it. <laughs> Go well, on. I think, that, <laughs> I think that part of what's happening here is we've the, as a country, we've moved so far right that people forget how far right the Clintons were. I mean, when the Clintons first came on the scene, when Bill Clinton yeah. was first running for president, he was so far, um, he was so conservative that most, that a lot of mainstream Democrats didn't like him. Yeah. So, okay, it's a lot of years later, lots of things have happened, but that's still their core. That is where they came from. It doesn't really, didn't really surprise me at the time that she wouldn't, be more specific about where she was yeah, on gay marriage years point. ago. Absolutely. So I don't think she's moved that much. Mm -hmm. I think it's a little bit surprising that somebody with that kind of experience doing interviews was that defensive. I mean, that was the part of it that struck me. I just, you know, 
you the the tension in that interview when I finally heard the whole thing. Yeah. If I were Terry, I would have had a hard time finishing it. Let's, you know, just, just in terms of the tension, let me just um, yeah. hang on to your thought, though. Um, but I just so people can, can kind of hear, we do have a little clip of this is towards the end. Uh, and, you know, there's always sort of there's often sort of a moment, uh, you know, where, um, you know, a politician has to make a decision. You know, am I am I going to call attention to the fact that we're not getting along that well? So you've got George H.W. Bush and Dan Rather. You got there's lots of actually a lot of these stories involve Dan Rather. But um, <laughs> but um, so anyway, I, I also while we're playing the clip, I want to say uh, learn the lesson of the nose, which is if you want to call in, call in now because we will move on to other things. 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. So after, uh, you know, seven of those 10 uh, interrogatories that, uh, that James was mentioning, is somewhere around then, uh, this is what it, it started to sound like. You know, I really, I have to say, I think you are um, being very persistent, but you are playing with my words and playing with what is such an I'm just trying to clarify issue. so I can understand. No, I don't think you are trying to clarify. <laughs> okay. I think you're trying to say that, you know, I used to be uh, opposed and now I'm in favor and I did it for political reasons. And that's just flat wrong. So let me just state what I feel like you are implying and repudiate it. I have a strong record. I have a great commitment to this issue and i am proud of what i've done and the progress we're making yeah i'm saying i'm sorry i I just want to clarify what i was saying no i I was saying that you maybe really believe this all along but you know believed in gay marriage all along but felt for political reasons america wasn't ready yet and you couldn't say it that's what i was thinking. no that no that is not true okay i did not grow up even imagining gay marriage and i don't think you probably did either this was an incredibly new and important idea that people on the front lines of the gay rights movement began to talk about uh, and slowly but surely uh, convinced others of the rightness of that position. Uh, And when I was ready to say what I said, I said it. Um, you don't want to use the word repudiate when you're talking yeah, to Terry. Yeah, Carson. yeah, good, that surprised me. Yeah. You know, you know. I think that she thought actually she was talking with Megyn Kelly on Fox. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, well, well, that that speaks to the point that I was thinking of is NPR, and I've seen Colin get you know hammered on Facebook for writing a completely unpartisan column about guns and stuff, and people kind of wheeling in and making it political and assuming that this show and every other show on NPR is spoon-feeding the liberal left, whatever the pablum that they need. I I think Terry Gross defies that, as I think this show does. But I think Terry Gross kind of – there's only been three people that walked off her show. I think Gene Simmons, Bill O'Reilly, and Lynn Cheney. And maybe Hillary would have if she could have. I'm not sure. But her persistence does speak to the fact that she's just trying to speak to an individual person. This individual person is really a, a great group of people. It's not an individual person yet. It's just this conglomerate that fronted by Hillary Clinton who is tiptoeing into a presidential uh, uh, candidacy. First yeah, of all, I, I, just, I do want to mention uh, Gene Simmons, Lynn Cheney, and Bill O'Reilly have now formed a supergroup, and they are touring America <laughs> this year, uh, not unlike Asia, I think. Anyway, go ahead. I just think that one of the factors in all of this is that all of these people who are being interviewed are really incredibly sort of like, like running scared of an instant wave that might occur through Twitter or through one of the online services that 
all of the people who are behind them, their handlers and everybody associated with them warns them of this, that, you know, you don't let something get out of your control. Don't ad lib something. Don't say something that, you know, you haven't really thought through. And that's acting as kind of a filter for a lot of people in very strange ways. I mean, I think actually Rick Perry is is an example of that in a sort of strange way, uh, because I think the Republicans are trying to take attention from uh, away from from a, a train wreck. And that there's a there seems to be a sort of desperate resurfacing now of an attempt to revive hostility to gay people as a, as a political issue. And I think that that is also aimed at that sort of instant response network. And so all of these things are slightly related. And in, in uh, Hillary Clinton's case, I think that it's almost like she feels out of depth with that kind of instantness. And therefore, she's going to actually do an old-fashioned sort of turnaround and attack Terry Gross for doing her job, really. And and doesn't seem to seems to have a tin ear about what that means to the it, public. It might be a second-term question. Those are <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the other right. thing is, if you if you read through it, you sort of listen to what she says. She she pretty much says nothing. Yeah. Mm. Those right. answers right. say nothing. Oh, yeah, my absolutely. my favorite answer is I'm an American. Yeah. So that yeah. a couple of times, right. like Michelle Bachman is an American. Right. What and does she that says tell it too. us? Yeah. Yeah. Right. What does that tell us? Isn't nothing. that the point of this particular part of anyone's campaign? <laughs> is they're they're just a yeah. Manila envelope and people yeah. are slipping ideas in. But see here, I I think there is an interesting question that's underlying that whole exchange, and and it's this. Uh, it's it's the it's the fundamental American political question, which is, you know, what is the role of leadership? To what degree does anybody lead? And then, to what degree does anybody essentially assess this, the, the changing attitudes of the public, and then try to line him or herself up with them? You know, and we have an idea. I, I think it almost almost approaches a myth that that people can lead us, and that that there are leaders who can really lead. And I think one of the reasons that Hillary Clinton didn't do that well in two thousand eight was that Barack Obama did a better impersonation, anyway, of a leader. That's, he said, yeah. "I can lead you. I can give you change. You can believe in. Yes, yes, we can. You know, the, I actually can lead you certain places. I'm not really sure that's turned out to be true, but but." We look for that anyway in a political campaign. The difficulty is if you start trying to lead somebody to do something that they have no inclination to do, uh, to do whatsoever, you get in a lot of trouble. And and so I I hear Hillary Patty when she's talking there, she's she's sort of admitting that she's sort of saying, right. you know, I wasn't a leader on this. I didn't. I mean, she doesn't want to have to say that, so she says other things. But I wasn't a leader on this. I kind of waited and I evolved the way everybody else did. And when the time was right, I threw my marker down there. Except I'm not even sure she's got the timeline on how everybody else was evolving, right? I mean, she seems to be suggesting that gay marriage came out of nowhere 10 years ago and that and that nobody supported it then when that's just not the case. I mean, her her challenge to Terry that, you know, this is it. I never imagined gay marriage and I don't think you did either. I was sort of waiting for Terry to say, you know, in fact, I did. But but I I thought that was a you know she sort of threw down in a way that yeah. I'm not even sure was accurate. Yeah, I I, I think that that's uh, that's a very important point because um, it it goes to the heart of whether you're being real about something and being aware. Like like if you're aware of social currents and you're you're politically active and you are paying attention to possible supporters, you would certainly have heard that that rights 
on a general in a general sense rights for lesbian and gay people and transgender people eventually that, that all of this was something that was a very much a theme behind all of the demonstrations that were taking place and people did think on those things they might not have thought in terms of the speed that 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 it would happen that there would be court rulings that would support same sex marriage but yes the ideas were there and i you know going back to this thing about leadership i think i sometimes wonder whether leadership is really a concept that works in a universe of instant reaction and large well paid armies who are trying to protect you from the consequences of that instant reaction and so if you are going to be a leader you're going to get flack but if the flack is so enormous in terms of a wave that people then report on and then it becomes an echo chamber the leadership issue gets lost. Well, who – I mean, hilariously, who quote-unquote led on this? Well, the, really the, the only and – and I really do mean this with it, with huge air quotes. Joe Biden, right? Joe Biden said – That's right. You know, yeah. I mean, he said something that, as you're <laughs> suggesting, Betty, was really pretty obvious, you yeah. know, to anybody participating in, in, in any kind of social dialogue. You know, he sort of said, well, yeah, you know, this is, he, he of course bl- they should be able to get married. Yeah, he blurted it out. And then Obama <laughs> said, I think Joe got out over his skis a little bit or something like that. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, Obama was evolving. Right. He was I evolving. Mean, yeah. These guys yeah. were so far behind their yeah. skis that their skis, yeah. was, they were, <laughs> the skis were down in the lodge having a cup of hot cocoa while they were still halfway up the hill. Never show your dedication until you're absolutely 100 percent sure. <laughs> But, I mean, I think that does sort of raise the question. I mean, I, I think your question is the right one. Does leadership even work anymore? I, mean, I don't know. I, I'm not sure it does. I don't think we have the climate for it now. I mean, let's, let's take Barack Obama, who, who wanted to lead and was obstructed, uh, historically obstructed from day one. Now, who knows where he would have led us? But he certainly didn't have too much chance to lead. Yeah. So, so what is the reaction then is, is reaction. It, it, it empowers the reactionaries. Right. It means, you know, so, okay, so Obama has to show that he's strong. So is he going to have to take air power into Iraq now to, to you know, demonstrate that he's strong? And well, so, we could be sure if John McCain was leading. Iraq would have been blown to bits by now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, well, uh, for, first of all, let me just uh, grab a couple of words back from the public. We may uh, be changing tracks here pretty soon. James, not the one in the studio, presumably tweets, HRC ended up sounding like a consummate squirrely pal. Politically, I'm in her corner, but I don't want to prez like that. Terry Gross rocked. Uh, that's a tweet. Here's a call from Mary in Hartford, who I think is taking the opposite tack. Hi, Mary. Hi. I just want to say I think Hillary made an important point, and except she said it in a circumstance, circumspect way, and the media, you know, is used to headlines, and, and I think that uh, Terry Gross was really sort of searching for a kind of headline statement from Hillary. But what she said was that her position evolved. Mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton said this, that her position evolved over the years as many Americans' positions evolved because persons who were activists in the LGBT community came out and, and helped articulate the need and the values um, for change. And, um, you know, I thought it was an interesting point. It wasn't uh, super clearly stated, but uh, uh, she, she described the evolution of her, her feelings as well as America. So, um, and, and how, how glad she was um, that of the change. And I thought, you know, I think it's too bad that... Um, that uh, the media can't, um, you know, look at something that's that's not just a headline. All right. Thanks for that. Um, well, I mean, look, at, I think that um, 
I, I think that pursuing an answer when you're not getting one can can take you down a road as a journalist that can be difficult. Um, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Um, clearly, there's one point in there where Terry Gross says, okay, well, that's one for whatever, whatever that line <laughs> was. Right. You could tell that she was angry by then and, yeah. and was going to keep going. I, you know, was she in pursuit of a of a headline? She I don't know. I think she was gotcha. trying to get an answer, right. and I, I'm I haven't quite heard her do that before. And I I thought it was fair. And look at I, you know, I'm a Hillary person. I, you are a Hillary person. But but I I just like what's wrong with the question? What I'm seeing journalists do right now with Hillary Clinton is search for those sentences that begin with I. And if you listen to the Terry Gross thing, and I've now listened to that seven minute thing about four times. The problem is that she keeps describing in the abstract uh, what, what happened. She, yes, says, exactly. she says America evolved. These things changed. She says at one point there will always be people who are out in front. I'm proud of those people who are out in front. But, but she, what she doesn't say was – she doesn't say I. She doesn't say yeah. I didn't exactly. get it. Right. I didn't get it at first. Okay. And until exactly. the end when she's really mad at Terry Gross. And then she goes, look, I grew up when you grew up. I never heard of great gay marriage. Neither right. did you. I bet. At that point, she's really <laughs> – she's finally saying something that has the first person pronoun. And I think right. Diane Sawyer is right. We need to hear her occasionally say, I didn't get it at first. Exactly. Now I get it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like that moment in the Benghazi hearing when she finally got ticked off right. and she said, what right. difference does it make? Mm-hmm. I mean, that was uh, that was the most real moment of those hearings. And it was like, yes. Mm-hmm. So you finally got irritated with these guys for asking yeah. a question that's academic. But I think that what would have worked better for her, and I'm, I, you know, I feel some sympathy to, to Hillary Clinton in this situation, but what would have worked better for her, and so perhaps some of the people around her could have told her, was to be sincere earlier in mm-hmm. that interview. Yes. Yeah. When she had the opportunity to say, well, yes, you know, I mean, I, I think that I had a lot to learn. Say something, you know, that actually connected her personally. And I think that then, I think Terry Gross would have been more satisfied with that answer. Yeah, onto the next subject, mm. really. It, onto the next subject, exactly. Aren't well, these people, be though, just being it. trotted out now for their first viewing and groomed? <laughs> and, and it really is a pony show right now. They can't say anything super substantial yeah. that might be on the record, that might be amplified via whatever media. But some, some and, and that's not to defend her yeah, at all. It's yeah. just the circumstance that mm. we've created right now with social media and, and cable news just having a, a insatiable appetite for it's like the paddock little... walk before the Belmont stakes. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think it is. But isn't, yes. isn't there a point at which the in fear, a <laughs> the the fear that rules all of this and it connected with the online universe that somebody has to get beyond that fear that that eventually, I mean, this is going to go nowhere. And maybe this, this is just the season for artifice until like the gloves are off and they really have to start. B- duking it out. It, well, it, no, this is, we see this in fiction all the time, in fictional representations, whether it's a movie like Bullworth or, or whether it's Martin Sheen on the West Wing. Yeah. You know, we see these people who can really tell it like it is. That's right. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's our dream. We use right. that to dream because yeah. right. it so rarely happens. Right. Um, we're going to let uh, Whitney from Farmington have the last word on this. We have to move on. We have other things to talk about. Hi, Whitney. Hi. Um, I was calling. Just, I heard a bit of the interview with Hillary yesterday and Hillary Clinton and um, I thought she handled it well in the beginning, but I didn't get to hear the ending where it got kind of heated with Terry Gross, but I was listening to your conversation. And um, I think Terry Gross is wonderful. I think she's an excellent journalist. And um, 
And I just, hearing your conversation, I often think about politics and how people, you know, we, we put these leaders into these impossible kind of positions where they get into situations where they have to make really difficult decisions. And, um, and sometimes we pigeonhole them into those thoughts. And it's just kind of the nature of our society and kind of the nature of politics, I guess. But um, I just wanted to say that I think that if we can just give ourselves a little bit of openness and honesty and, and forgiveness, forgiveness of our leaders who are trying to, to make the world better and, um, and be able to be open and honest without always kind of persecuting them. And I'm not saying that you're persecuting them. I just, um, I just, I don't know. I just wanted to say, let's, let's, it's hard for them to, um, always make, you know, one, say one thing. And then if they say it, then they're, then they're, then, then they have to own it. Yeah. Stuck on that for, for the rest of their career. Whitney, thanks so much for your call. You do get the last word. We're going to move on. We're going to take a break. We'll come back with more from the nose. Just a dream. I'll probably never meet her. I'll never get to see her beautiful face in person, her lovely eyes or her hair. Still, I've got a crush on Hillary Clinton. And when she's speaking up on that TV. All right. This story, uh, which I think broke yesterday, just really snuck uh, or sneaked right under my nose. I didn't know anything about this, and it's happening right in our backyard. Well, if you love opera, it's harder and harder to see opera. Unless well, you could do something like go to an excellent movie theater like Cine Studio with an excellent sound system, where sometimes these days uh, opera is shown to you that way uh, on simulcasts or, or otherwise. Uh, but opera is increasingly expensive to stage. Um, so there is a man uh, named Charles Goldstein uh, who lives here in Connecticut who has founded something called the Hartford Wagner Festival with the idea that one day Connecticut uh, could be one of the places well, – very few places where the entire ring cycle is done every year, the Wagner ring cycle. Um, he – meanwhile – but this has cost a lot of money because there's just huge orchestras for Wagner. So he's been experimenting around and according to the New York Times, after finding synthesizers unsatisfying, he bought access to something called the Vienna Symphonic Library, a, a collection of sampled sounds of orchestra instruments, which he bought from uh, Chapdelaine Musical Features Incorporated, a uh, mail order firm that uh, <laughs> a lot of people have dealt with. In 2005 – Bermuda. He has been painstakingly <laughs> entering every single – he has been painstakingly entering every single note of the ring into musical software. Uh, he's collaborated with his singers to choose tempos uh, and the whole idea anyway is to do uh, Das Rheingold, to do the, the ring cycle, the entire ring cycle, not with an orchestra, but with um, 24 speakers uh, mimicking the positions of the instruments in the pit and this, this program of some kind uh, playing the orchestration. So uh, this is really sort of right up uh, Jim Chapdelaine's alley. Um, so we should also say that one of the, the, the there's been there's been an outcry bordering on bullying from I mean there's even a Facebook page called Musicians Against the Hartford Wagner Project uh, and there have been emails so uh, heated that one of the singers and these are professional singers who perform all over the world one of the singers bowed out because he just he just like I, I can't handle this. Um, so it, it's, you know, it's turned into kind of a much larger conversation than just about what's going to happen at the Roberts Theater in August in West Hartford uh, on the campus of Kingswood Oxford School, which is where this is all supposed to take place. So, and Jim, you, you, know of, you know of this. You know of these I, I actually have this sample library. <laughs> um, and as you're describing what he's doing, 
all I can think of is the guy who built Holy Land in Waterbury, mm-hmm. is that this is the most arduous, like, painstaking task that it would be so much easier for him to hire an orchestra <laughs> than to, to take this on and enter these things note by note and find the right sample. I mean, it's no small amount of work. And, and really what the original guys who developed computer music and then that turns into synthesizers and Moog, they were interested in cultivating and, and making new sounds. They weren't interested in a keyboard player at a wedding playing a saxophone solo that, you know, people would then grit their teeth and do that funny white guy dance thing to. That was not their intent at all. But look, look sampling is has its place. There would be no hip-hop without it. Um, there would be no commercials without it. And there would be no movie scores without it. But should it replace live musicians? I would ask drummers who, who took the first hit because drum machines were the easiest to, to start with. But gradually people realize this is horrible unless you're doing a, a certain type of R&B or hip-hop or whatever. But if you ever hear a, a, an actual track with a drum machine, uh, you, you can only listen to it two times compared with a real drummer. And the same <laughs> with, with the real musician. They, they really can't do it the way he's intending to do it. That's my short answer. <laughs> I can give you a really long right. one. But do we worry about sort of the dumbing down of of um, of people's you know hearing? I mean, you think about well, for lack of a better example, somebody like J Lo. I mean, clearly she doesn't sing like that. I'm pretty sure that when she's singing at these concerts, there's lots of backup Pro Tools, whatever it is that she's doing that's backing up that voice. Well, that, automa- uh, that the automa- auto-tune machine that mm-hmm. she's using, I'm sure, has like smoke coming out of it. <laughs> but, but the point is, people love it. I mean, people buy tickets to those concerts and they go. I'm not, I'm, I think it's kind of horrible. But that I mean, music it has always be. existed, mm-hmm. right? That top 40, like the top 10 has always existed and always been sort of teeny bopper music and there's always been mixed people. up so much that you well, can't really hear yeah, the voices. I mean they just didn't have the same tools mm-hmm. so they used imagery and press and everything to create that but and real music has always mm-hmm. flowed underneath it I, I, I want to hear what James has to say yeah. about this although let me just quickly say before I go to James uh, I've had a number of interesting conversations about this today um including with our news department. We have the most musical news department in all of public radio. Uh, Diane Orson is an accomplished violinist who plays in pit orchestras uh, in, in, with shows and stuff like that and also was a former backup singer for Harry Belafonte, believe it or not. Um, Ray Hardman is also a professional singer uh, and, and leads his own band. Jeff uh, Cohen is studying trombone right now. Patrick Scahill, as we know, plays as a guitar uh, wizard. Uh, and I'm assuming Harry Jones plays bagpipes, because they all do, right? Everybody in Scotland plays bagpipes. I'm teaching in the public schools, I assume. <laughs> but um, I don't know what Lucy plays. But anyway, uh, talking to Ray and, and Diane today was very interesting about this. Because Diane, one thing that Diane said, and I'm t- turning to you, James, is there, given everything that Patty just said, there's, I think there's a sense that opera is is the last frontier in a way, you know, that, that they can do it to this, they can do it to that. I mean, they're going to do it everywhere. And they've done it on Broadway, obviously, and they've, they've, they've come up with these systems that, that basically do replace orchestras. And we all lament that, but it's happening. But orchestra, I mean, the opera seemed to be kind of a frontier that, that hadn't been invaded that way. 
Well, I think there's a kind of complicated thing with opera because opera has always been supported by people with a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And so it's been insulated somewhat from the pressures that other arts perhaps have, have suffered. But one of the fascinating things to me is that if you presented the Wagner ring cycle as the electronic ring cycle as a particular way of sort of putting it on, okay, so you can go and listen to it or not, depending on how what you feel about it. But it's sort of like a facet of the art. But the, the, the root of the art is the individual expression of the musicians and the singers and the extraordinary experience of actually uh, human beings listening to this going on. And I think there's kind of a parallel. It's a sort of out there. Um, one of the things I'm always touting is that the experience of sitting in the dark watching movies, which is my life, that's what I do is run movies, and the experience of sitting in the dark with a lot of people watching a larger-than-life image and being sort of concentrated on it and absorbing the art of cinema in a particular way and then you might meet somebody who says, well, OK, I, you know, I watched Lawrence of Arabia on my cell phone, you know, and so I've sort of consumed the art, <laughs> seen the art. And, and never mind that you probably missed a few details. But um, the, the thing that's interesting to me is that all of these technologies are out there being experimented with. I mean, after all, now actors in, uh, in, in the film industry are starting to put in clauses that the studios can't use avatars, uh, you know, because why? Because the moving version of Photoshop is 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 alive and well, and and it's quite possible to create a scene that was not actually filmed mm. in, with the live actor and actually change the scene. And so you know, you're changing the the nature of it. It's interesting in and of itself. You can make a, spe a specific performance related to that. But the base of the art, the actual performance, I mean, I, to me, opera is something that's an extraordinary, overwhelming almost experience of hearing so many people working to make this art happen. It's, it's special for that reason. It's incredibly expensive. People pay huge fees to buy tickets and all of that. And it's attractive in that atmosphere to say, well, look, is there a way of doing this so more people can hear it? But it's electronic. But it's different. It's not the same thing. Well, maybe if it was reimagined using electronica, that would be a really interesting thing. Yeah. And it would make it sure. maybe more accessible to, to more people. But the idea of painstakingly re trying yes, to recreate To make it seem like it's something that it's not. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's yeah. like Civil War reenactment. I, I, <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I quite, tend I'm not to sure agree, I quite yes. get it. <laughs> Did you want to say something? But yeah, why, I did. I nice but, but, okay. Well, let, let me just let me just say a couple of a couple of little <laughs> Millie things. Vanilli. Yeah, That's okay. what I was going to oh, say. Millie Vanilli. Yeah. Let me just say a couple of <laughs> things about this. Um, one of them, first of all, I, I also talked to Sir Ray Hardman uh, today, and he made an interesting <clears throat> point, which is, I mean, it sort of goes back to Mark Twain's famous line that Wagner's music is better than it sounds, uh, but that um, um, you know Wagner in particular because the orchestrations are so huge that the singers who are often recruited for Wagner aren't necessarily the best singers in the world. They're the singers who can get up over the orchestra. The they are, you know, and he said, really, you know, one of the intriguing things here is if you had orchestrations that you could actually turn down, you might be able to get better singers. So, <laughs> that, so that was sort of an interesting point. I think the other part of this is, and you're kind of alluding to it already, Jim, this is going to happen and, and it might be possible to do it well. You know, that 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 with a musical program considerably more advanced than the one that they're talking about right now, it, it can happen. Uh, on Broadway, even though it's lamentable that it's happening, they, they have programs where somebody really is playing it and can control the pace, the, uh, you know, the, the tempo uh, of the quote-unquote orchestra. Um, somebody will do an affordable 
you know, electronic version of an opera that will really sound kind of interesting. Well, there are certain instruments that lend themselves to being synthesized, mm. uh, uh, groups of strings, but not solo strings. Electric guitar, in any meaningful way, almost impossible because oh, there's too much well, nuance. Just to, I, and this was what I was going to say, is that some of this is about making this accessible, I think. Mm. I think the whole idea here is that he's going to create this way to do opera here that more people can hear, which is, as I remember, wasn't the Connecticut opera, remember when they did the whole, they brought all the animals George in? George Osborne, he did and they did, did Turandot also, I, um, big productions. You know, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So, you know, backing up from it, you can say, okay, there's an interesting idea here. It may not be working quite right. And maybe these guys have a point that real music might actually be a little better. People the, might enjoy it more, but but I, you know, it just occurs to me that that is the bigger picture of you, what I think this guy make is some trying converts to. Converts here? No, I'm not. I'm mm. not looking to convert anyone, but <laughs> Millie Vanilli. Ma- so <laughs> we're getting tweeted by Matthew. Matthew tweets: Musicians <clears throat> should speak up, but must draw the line when they start harassing other musicians. It damages our argument, and that is what did happen this time: is that some of the people participating in this project started to feel very uh, harassed. Uh, Matthew also tweets the argument that in order to make music more accessible, they use electronic instruments but still charge the acoustic price. Um, Harriet Jones tweets, sadly, I only play sampled bagpipes. Uh, and uh, <laughs> Matthew also tweets, uh, are, the instruments, are the instrumental musicians purely accompanists or does our art contribute to the opera as a whole? This suggests that we don't. And that, that goes back to your point, James, that, that whatever, whatever opera is – our idea of opera, anyways, is this huge, overwhelming experience in which the musicians play, you know, a, a huge role. Uh, right. And I, I think it's easy to think, you know, with new technologies, there's always money at work saying that, well, OK, <clears throat> we can now do it for less cost. And so you can say more people would hear the Wagner ring cycle if this were done or or whatever it is. And, and, and it, it, it goes back to that argument about watching Lawrence of Arabia on a cell phone. <laughs> I mean, you can do that and you can sort of have a flavor of it. But if you are introducing new people to Wagner by this means – how will they ever know what that incredible experience of enveloping in the music? I mean, to a certain extent, you're presented with art as being something that costs a lot to do now because of paying a lot of people and the rentals and all the rest of it. And I think that's some, that is something to fight for, really, that um, you can certainly have this this electronic Wagner as a sort of special art thing that people experience, but don't pretend that it is the, the real thing. Or take it the entire distance. You know, that same library comes with giant cho- choral samples and, and yeah. you can actually make words. So don't have anybody. Just just enter your data and enter your data and enter your data and pretty soon you're going to have the whole opera, including the singers. Why bother with singers? <laughs> well, well yeah. right. And the end game of this sort of thing is like those Good movies grief. we had a few, a, a few years ago where you could choose the ending. You know, you could oh, right. the, the, like, yeah. and and you know, us projectionists with our thirty-five millimeter film reels, you know, had like four ending film reels, and so you know, you take the vote of the audience on, you know, which one you would use. Uh, but the, these were sort of creations by the directors. Still, these were still four four pieces that they had made that made it part of the art. But I think that when you go to the point of uh, creating a totally different impression from the original piece of art. 
then you present it as that. You say what it is. Okay, we're not going to have time to do drones on the beach. I do want to say that if Jim's vision <clears throat> is ever realized, you know, the singers are are also just completely digital and stuff. I plan to take Scarlett Johansson in a phone as my date. <laughs> uh, anyway, we're going to take a break. We'll come back after this. My Probably the wrong day to mention my plan to stage Oklahoma with a cast of Roomba robot vacuum cleaners, huh? Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Lily Tyson and Josh Nalea. Greg Hill tweets for us a WNPR Colin, and Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Placido Domingo. For show pages, articles, and photos of the Faith Middleton Show staff hiding in a bunker because it's Friday the 13th with solar flares and a full moon, visit our website, WNPR.org. On Monday's show, hilarious writer Henry Alford visits the scramble. And now, back to Colin. Yeah, Henry Alford, who's writing I've been admiring since about 1990, uh, will be joining us, and he and I, over the weekend, will figure out three topics to talk about. Uh, Right now, it's time for endorsements. Before we endorse, I just want to say, I I, I used to do this all the time, and it's been a while since I did it. Um, I stole this idea from the Slate Culture Gap Fest. Uh, And so, and I didn't even change the name of it or anything like that, because I like the idea so much. So that's why we endorse. All right, James, uh, what are we going to endorse? Uh, A reminder to everybody that the Coventry Farm Market is back in business, but a couple of uh, particular notes. Um, Jonathan Janeway and Charlotte Ross have just bought a farm in Lebanon and the Lebanon is, uh, they, they produce wonderful produce and they're just starting out and uh, they're at the Coventry Market. Uh, but Lebanon, that corner of Lebanon is becoming a real sort of center of, of interesting activities with farming. And the other mention is for Paul Truby at, at uh, Beltane Farm which has a huge number of uh, new goats that were born this spring, and so they've had a lot of extra expenses, and they're running a fundraising concert, um, I think, in July 13th, I believe. But anyway, uh, on their website, uh, BeltaneFarm.com, and uh, they have wonderful goat cheese. Jonathan and Charlotte, also from Sweet Acre Farm, are selling at the West End Farmer's Market, uh, which is sort of right um, – it's, it's in a new place. It's on Farmington Avenue, kind of up further, almost at the Mark Twain House on Tuesdays from 4 to 7 p.m. And they are the cutest little hippie farmers uh, in uh, <laughs> Connecticut ever. Anyway, go ahead. Oh, my yep, turn. Patty, your turn, yeah. Um, for those of you who have liked um, – the the goldfinch, which I thought was I just absolutely loved it. I know we've all talked about it on Facebook some. Um, I've started reading some books by uh, a writer named Louise Erdrich. She mm-hmm. wrote a book called The Roundhouse. Uh, I'm reading a, a, another one actually right now, but but have really sort of enjoyed her writing in particular about about um, about kids, about teenage teenage kids, and the, this in particular living on a um, on a Native American reservation uh, out west, and and family relations, et cetera. Anyway, I have sort of absorbed myself in her writing, and I think she's particularly good. All right. Louise Erdrich, endorsed. 
Uh, okay, for me, um, for those of us who use tremendous amounts of data in our work, as I do, uh, I had a catastrophic drive collapse last week and was considering joining the Foreign Legion. Uh, but We Care Computers actually retrieved all my stuff, so I'm going to give them some props, and uh, I no longer have to put my house for sale. Um, also, uh, I went to Barcelona last week, the restaurant, not mm. the place, and, uh, and the food is great, but I would beg them to turn down the techno music. It's not Ibiza, um, but the food is great, and the staff is like little Scientologists, and, uh, and that was great. Oh, they're and, not literally. Right, right. right. They're not lit- – well, some of them may be, in <laughs> fact. Um, and lastly, uh, with a heavy heart, we, are, uh, we have a member in her darkest hours – uh, so I would ask anyone who uh, feels like it to go to www.cureasc.com and drop a, a nickel or something in the bucket. All right. Thanks for that, Jim Chapdelaine. Uh, very quickly, I'm going to endorse – I was downtown in Hartford on Wednesday night uh, dropping in on Verakai, which is the latest Cirque du Soleil production. It's in the XL Center. They've done a very nice job. I mean I think you should see Cirque du Soleil in the so-called Grand Chapiteau if you possibly can. But you know, in terms of maybe adopting a, a, a coliseum like that and making it a little smaller, they, they've done a very good job. And if you've never seen Cirque du Soleil, you've got to go at least once and see it. So uh, it's there. But what I'm really going to endorse is after I left there, I'm walking around downtown and suddenly there's some music coming out of a place called Latus. Well, I didn't even know there was such a place. It's right on Asylum. And playing there was Steve Davis, uh, Hartford's unbelievable jazz trombonist. He's like, you know, he would be awesome anywhere. We happen to have him in Hartford because of the Hart School. Uh, He was there with this uh, quartet involved, including his son, who's 19 and unbelievable on the guitar, an incredible jazz guitarist. So anyway, I guess they're there on Wednesday nights and maybe also kind of early Sunday evenings there up at Max downtown. But I guess I'm endorsing live music in Hartford and Steve Davis on the trombone in particular. Uh, Thanks to everybody, Jim Chapdelaine, James Hanley, Patty McQueen, uh, for being with us today. And we'll be back on Monday. I'm Kion Wolf, pleased to present the Asylum Hill Opera Bots. Uh, Ave Maria, Lenta, Maria. Okay, stop. We need to retune. Hey, I said stop. Oh. Stupid robots. <laughs>